0: Alright, hey, welcome to Rockbridge. My name is Matt. I want to welcome you all across North Georgia in the Tennessee Valley. So, Hickson, Calhoun, Ringo, Dalton, Chatsworth, somebody gave you a CD, you're watching on the computer. Hey, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We start a new series today, and so if this is kind of your first time at Rockbridge, let me just explain. that We kind of package our messages in a, in a similar context or a similar theme, and we'll be in this for, for a while. And so, that's what we're doing as we start this series called... Habits, vices, and sins, oh my, and I'm not going to sing that because you would get up and leave. That's not my thing. So thank you so much for being here and for sharing this time with us. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you can kind of raise your hand in your mind, if you will. If you've ever gotten mad and yelled at another driver... Uh, if you've ever gotten mad I yelled at a referee, and, and a lot of you can't deny that because I've seen you, all right, uh, and probably joined with you in that endeavor. So if you've ever gotten mad at someone, and, and you probably shouldn't have gotten mad at someone, if you've ever kind of told a little white lie to cover something up or to make yourself not look bad, um, you can kind of raise your hand, at least in your mind, if you've ever shared a prayer request, but it was really closer to a gossip request, right? Uh, you can kind of you know, you, so there's things that that we do, and it, they almost just seem sort of ordinary. And at the end of your day, if you pray, you don't really say, God, forgive me for sharing that prayer request. I mean, that gossip, I mean, that prayer request. You don't do it. You just don't think about that. You don't think, hey, God, uh, forgive me for what I said to the referee because he deserved it. You just don't do that. Uh, I mean, there's things in our lives that we don't really call sin or mistakes or we don't think they're that bad. But technically they are, but practically it's just what was required in the moment. It's just kind of what we felt like doing or what society says. That's just kind of what you got to do in the world that we live in. And so there's sort of what we call excusable vices, And a vice is just sort of a pattern and a habit that's kind of like, it just kind of is excusable. And so an excusable vice sort of feels necessary or it's like it's justifiable and it's ordinary. It's just sort of nothing like, hey, yeah, technically I could probably find a verse that says I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have thought that. I shouldn't have eaten that second piece of cake, whatever the case may be. But it just sort of felt ordinary and okay. And, And after all, after all, I mean, you turn on CNN and somebody shoots in YouTube headquarters you you do all these things and, and, and there's terrorism and there's evil and there's rape and there's murder and, and those are really the bad ones right but then you got to come back and like, oh, okay but technically and so there's this tension there's wrestling and we kind of excuse it and we kind of gloss over it uh, another another part of an excusable vice is that usually they're not one-time missteps but they're patterns they're, they're sort of habits and a lot of times when we think about habits, or we think about vices, or we think about bad things in our life, we think about the one time I, the one Friday night when, the one season when it was just out of control, but, but, but day in and day out, we don't think about these ordinary, necessary, justifiable sort of slip-ups or missteps or sins, but we really don't want to call it sins because they are really not one of the big ones. And so we got all this going on inside of us, and because they're, they're not really one-time missteps and patterns, they're really kind of part of who we are. They're part of who we are, meaning they're part of our character. So like if you've known someone for a while, and, and they say this about you, they say, oh, that's just Joe being Joe. And what they mean is, Joe's just got a short fuse. Or they mean, hey, Joe's just got a thing for the ladies. Or, or, or they mean, hey, you know, Joe just likes to spend a lot of money. And it's sort of just Joe being Joe and there's nothing. I mean, nobody's dying and nobody's getting really hurt, but it's just Joe being Joe. So that's kind of part of what makes it excusable, Right? And then the third thing, and this is, this is where it gets really sticky for us, and we're, why, why we got to spend some time on these habits, vices, and sins, is they are gateways. Now what I mean by gateways is, is these vices and these habits and these patterns in our lives, and, and yeah, technically we'll find them in the Bible and they're sins, but these habits, these vi- they're gateways in that they, they have offspring that are larger that are like a little more sinister they lead places Okay? They lead to more destructive behavior. They lead to divorces. They lead to death. They lead to loss of integrity, loss of character, loss of reputation, loss of trust. They, they're just kind of gateways. They're like the source of a river that becomes a, a mighty rapid and becomes a waterfall of destruction and duplicity and deceit and defeat in our lives. And, and so what we're going to do is something the church has been talking about Since at least the 4th century. So I'm going back a long way for this. And the church fathers and and some of the early leaders in in, in Christianity's infancy identified what we call today the seven deadly sins. Okay? And they're not really grouped together in Scripture, but they started looking at, at humanity and they said, Man, these seven sins just sort of lead to everything else. These seven sins are the gateways, but they hide because you're really not going to kind of at the end of your day say, oh, I'm guilty of X or I'm guilty of Y because they sort of hide and camouflage and they feel so ordinary, justifiable, and necessary that they just sort of embed themselves in how we routinely treat people and how we routinely handle our anger or our emotions and how we view the opposite sex or whatever the case may be. And so the, the early church fathers from the fourth century till today have been talking about these Seven vices as the seven deadly sins because of what they lead to and what they cause. And so we're going to take a look at that, okay? Before we get to the the first one, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what the one is next week. And let me tell you why I'm going to tell you the one next week. Because next week's sermon is going to have a rating Okay? Not necessarily from the Motion Picture Association, but from the the Matt Evans Association. We're going to be about PG-12, PG-13, because we're going to talk about lust. Okay? And we're going to talk about Song of Solomon kind of stuff, which is the Bible's book on sex and intimacy. And so, listen, this is a great week next week to introduce your kids to Rockbridge Kids. Okay? Uh, I, I tell you, I, I, t- I talk at a sixth grade level, okay? I just tell you that. Like, I've had some kids in the church service during uh, Christmas season, and I've told them Santa Claus doesn't exist, and I've had parents get mad at me, and I'm like, hey, we provide an environment for your kids, okay? So, <clears throat> hopefully I didn't spoil Christmas this soon already for some kids in the room. So, next week is lust, uh, we're going to put a rating on the sermon. I, I, and again, I'm not going to be lewd and crude and all that kind of stuff. You know, that was when I was in the Navy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> so we won't do that, but I do need to put a rating and just kind of tell you parents we have a great kids environment where they will be age appropriate and they'll be able to apply uh, the lesson. So if you have your Bibles, as we get into the first of the seven deadly, we're going to look at it through the, the lens of a guy named Saul, King Saul. King Saul is the first king of Israel. Israel had said, God, we want to be like the other countries. We want a king. And God said, you don't need a king. You have me. I'm your king. I'm your savior. I'm your creator. I'm your covenant God. I'm Yahweh. But they said, no, God, we want a king. And so God eventually gave them this request, and the first king they get is is, is King Saul, and and we're going to go through about four or five symptoms of this first of the seven deadly, and and try to identify what it is, because they hide out for you. And and so you're going to see some of these symptoms, and you're going to be like, man, I have that. Man, I've done that. I mean, that shows up in my life routinely, but yet you're probably not fighting this sin. You might not even be calling it a sin or a vice because it seems so necessary, justifiable and ordinary, and after all, nobody's King Saul, 1 Samuel Amen. chapter 9. There was a prominent man of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, son of a Benjaminite. All right, just a little history and genealogy there. He had a son named Saul. There he is an impressive young man. Some translations will call him a handsome young man. And so the author, the narrator of 1 Samuel, immediately draws us to what I will call some kind of worldly qualities, like the stuff that you see when you're checking out your groceries at, 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 the, at the store. You see People Magazine. You see like Men's Fitness. You see like Cosmopolitan. And, and they show you people that our world views as impressive. And you walk by that, and you're like, I, I need to look like that to be somebody and you walk by that and you're like, man, I feel terrible about myself because of what I just saw or what I just read or the image I just got because we're very image conscious people. So the narrator just draws our attention to the fact that Saul uh, was a People magazine guy, that Saul was impressive looking, okay? And there was no one more impressive than the Israelites, than in, among the Israelites than he. And he's real tall, like he's NBA, right? He stood a head taller than anyone else. And so the narrator just gives us that information and we're really not sure w- what that has to do with anything. Other than, why why is that included in there? But then it continues, and and so Saul goes on a hunt for some donkeys, and and Samuel, who's the Lord's prophet at this time, gets a word from the Lord basically saying, hey, Saul is the king. Saul's the one you're going to anoint. And let's look at the progression of that. We'll skip to verse 15. Now, the day before Saul's arrival, the Lord had informed Samuel, the prophet, "'At this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin.'" Anoint him, appoint him, anoint him, put oil on him as the ruler over my people Israel. He's the first king. And so when Samuel saw, Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man I told you about. He will govern my people. He's the first king. So Saul approached Samuel in the city gate and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is or the, or the wise man or the prophet? Saul, Saul had come looking for Samuel. He says, well, I am the seer, Samuel answered. Go up ahead of me to the high place and eat with me today. When I send you off in the morning, I'll tell you everything that's in your heart. As for the donkeys that wandered away from you there days ago, three days ago, don't worry about them because they've been found. And then he gives, he gives Saul a little question. He says, and who does all Israel desire or want as the king is the implication, but you and all your father's family? And listen to Saul's response. He gives a very worldly, humanistic response. Hey, Saul, you have been chosen. Saul, you are the one God has appointed for this. You're the one I've picked out okay? And let me put it in our context, like in the church. The church runs on volunteers. The church runs on its members and its committed people, you know, to teach a Sunday, to teach a Bible study, to teach kids in Rockbridge kids to lead small groups, to lead hope ministries, all those kinds of things. The church is just fueled by its people and to partner with people. And so we'll ask people, hey, would you like to serve the Lord? Would you like to serve through the church? Or would you like to serve in one of our hope partners? And the, the two responses normally are, I'm busy. Okay, so we're too busy to do the Lord's work. We'll deal with that on another sermon. Or, who me? I'm not qualified. Which is exactly what Saul says to Samuel. He says, am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest of Israel's tribes? I don't have the resume ¡Sé, and isn't my clan the least important of all the clans of the Benjaminite tribe? So the narrator has set us up to see this is all about how people perceive each other. Saul is impressive and he's a, he's a head taller than anybody else. But how Saul sees himself is he's the least important. He's from the smallest tribe of all the clans of the Benjaminite tribes. So why have you said something like this to me? Who, me? God can't use me. God wouldn't pick me. God wouldn't save me. God wouldn't send me. God wouldn't do that because of all I am the least. I am the least important. And guess what? Most of us here have said something like that. Maybe maybe you didn't say it to God. Maybe you said it to your boss. Maybe you said it, it to your family. Like, hey, I can't help you. I'm not qualified. I've got a past. I'm the least. I'm not the most important. I'm not that impressive. I'm not people magazine worthy. We've all said it. All right. So, story continues. We'll skip on down to verse 27. <clears throat> As they were going down to the edge of the city that Samuel and Saul were getting ready to part ways. Samuel said to Saul, "We'll stay for a while and I'll reveal the word of God to you." Now, that's important because he's like, "Listen, I know what you think about yourself." I know other people kind of look at you and see People magazine because you're tall and you're impressive, but I'm going to tell you what God thinks of you. I'm going to tell you what the Word of God says about you. And that's so significant to the meaning of what we're trying to get at here together in our time together today. And then Samuel takes the flask of oil, and he poured it on Saul's head. That's the anointing. That would be symbolic of the presence of God falling upon Saul. King Saul, or Saul kissed him and said, hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? And, and it's funny because he asked him as a question because Saul doesn't believe it. And so the first symptom of this, one of these seven deadly sins that we're talking about is this. When we weigh worldly evaluations, counts more than the word of God. So when we look at ourselves and we evaluate ourselves based on what the world says or based on how we perceive ourselves in the eyes of the world, it's kind of like the, the, the resume. It's kinda, my resume doesn't add up when I compare myself to someone else. Who? Me? Why would God involve me? Why would God ask me? So we make worldly assessments uh, that count more, that weigh more than the Word of God. So, th- so look, there's kind of two ways to view yourself. There's, you view yourself in the eyes of, of how the world says it, okay? And, 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 and so the world says, well, you're, you're overweight, or you don't have this kind of hair, or this kind of body, or this kind of pedigree, pedigree, or you came from this family. That's sort of the least, that's the Benjaminite clan, Or or you can weigh yourself and judge yourself based on what I call your eyes. Your spiritual eyes is what's in this book and what the Word of God says about you. And so Samuel says, here's what the Word of God says about you, Saul. You're God's man. But Saul says, no, 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 the world, I'm the least. I'm, I'm not that important. It's not me. There's somebody else. So that's symptom number one of this first of the seven deadly sins that that shows up in our lives. And so uh, some of us are here today and we're like, that's kind of how I do myself. I mean, I look myself in the mirror and I think, well, the world would say this about me and that's how I see myself. And I disqualify myself at church because I'm just a pew sitter and I just take up space because God wouldn't want to use me. Or, or, you know, I, I haven't applied for the promotion, even though there's something that says, hey, God's kind of nudged me. No, or God would not be interested in someone like me because my resume has a past. My resume has skeletons in the closet. So surely God's not interested in me. And, and then some of you, though, you have what the world says you need to have. You pass the look test. You have the money test, you have the position, the giftedness that the world has esteemed. Hey, these are the values, these are the gifts that whew, and, and so you're like, "Yeah, that's who I am, baby." So all of us hopefully we all yeah, I've kind of got that symptom. All right, let's continue. So the story continues. We'll go to chapter 10, verse 20. And, and now they're getting ready to name and, and like, coron, like the coronation ceremony where Saul is going to become the man, the king, the chosen, the anointed one of Yahweh. This was no election, this was God saying it's Saul. The word of God saying it's Saul. So Samuel had all the tribes of Israel come forward, and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. Now we know where this is going. Then he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by its clans, and the Matriarch clan was selected. Finally, Saul of Kish was selected. So it's Saul. But when they searched for him, they could not find him. This is his big day. This is the inauguration. This is like putting the crown on his head. So they can't find him, so they inquired of God. Has the man come here yet? And then the Bible gets funny. That's why I tell you to read it. It's just great. Listen to what happens. The Lord replied, well, there he is, hidden among the supplies. The impressive man of God is hiding because he doesn't want the assignment. Because he's the least of the clans and the least important, the smallest. And he doesn't see himself as worthy or able to fulfill this call of God upon his life. So they ran and got him from there. And when he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. So he's the biggest, he's the physically most impressive, and he's hiding in fear among the supplies. And so this picture of your future king who's hiding, and he's going to lead you in battle against the Philistines, Israel. Don't you like this? And then here's Samuel being humorous. He said to all the people, Do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Kind of funny, you must not have gotten it, okay? The contrast is, your king that you asked for, and I told you, God said, I I told you you didn't need because you have me, your king's afraid, and he's hiding. Symptom number two of this seven deadly that we're getting to, insecurity. I look at myself, and I'm just afraid that I don't have what it takes I'm afraid I'll fail, I'm afraid I'll be rejected, I'm afraid I'll be an embarrassment, I, I, I'm, whatever it is, I, I just got to, and insecurity is kind of like a protective mechanism that I won't put myself out there, I won't risk because I'm afraid of the futility, the embarrassment, the shame, or I fear the failure that might come my way. I am not up to the task, I'm not up to the assignment, so I'll just sort of hide somewhere. And usually, we, you know, we've got good excuses. I- I'm busy. I'm not ready yet. Here's my favorite one from Christians. Oh, let me pray about it. Okay. <laughs> Symptom number two. And again, if we're kind of, we're like at the doctor's office, well, do you have this? And we're all like, yeah, what do I have, doc? He's like, oh, let me keep going. Let me keep asking you some more questions. Glad. First 13, chapter 13, story continues. All right, so now he's leading the, the, the Israelites in battle against their nemesis, the Philistines. And, and they're, in a, they're in a pickle. They're in a rock, but in between a rock and a hard place. So the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. So they hid in caves, in thickets, among rocks, and in holes and in cisterns. And some Hebrews even abandoned the, the battle lines. They crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. And he waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set. The prophet said, hey, I'm going to come offer a sacrifice. Come pray. Come seek the Lord on your behalf and I'll be there in seven days. So he waited for seven days. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. And the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And then he offered the burnt offering. Which is a no-no because only the priest, only the prophet could offer the authorized sacrifice. Now, let's just talk about it, okay? You've taken matters into your own hands. You've gotten impatient and said, hey, somebody's got to do it. And you call it, we call it in the world. We call it being decisive. We call it being a leader. We call it getting there done, baby. So Samuel, or excuse me, Saul gets her done. Just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him and Samuel asked, what have you done? And so Saul answered, he said, well, when I saw the troops were deserting me and you didn't come within the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought, the Philistines will now descend upon me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the Lord's favor, so I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time. That the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. Symptom number three of whatever this sin is or this vice is lack of submission. We're impatient on the Lord's timing. We're impatient with our boss because, believe me, the Bible says you should submit to your uh, your boss at work. We're impatient in our family dynamic. We're impatient in our relationship, and and so we're going to be decisive. We've got to make something happen. Nobody else is doing anything, so I'll grab the reins. I'll grab the steering wheel. I will take charge. I will fix this. I'm in control. Lack of submission. Lack of submission. And then the story continues, and we'll give you one more symptom. So God had said to attack this place, and he said, I want you to, to wipe it all out. No plunder for this one. I want you to kill the king, kill all the livestock, no plunder. This is an evil people, the Amalekites, that, that they were fighting at the time. So Saul and the troops spared King Agag, spared the king. God said, kill, he spared. And the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and choice animals, so they keep the plunder as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. says, I regret I made Saul king. Isn't that crazy that you and I can cause the God of the universe regret? Right. For he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel. Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. The guy who is hidden behind the supplies, the guy who didn't want to accept his assignments, now building statues for himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. And when Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel said, Well, what is the sound of sheep, goats, and cattle that I hear? And Saul answered, Well, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God. This is for God, right? But the rest we destroyed. So, Symptom number four is this desire to be recognized. I'll build a monument. Look what I did, Saul. Look at me, Saul. And the desire to be right. He so desires to be right, he covers his action in religious language. I've, I, I, I've had people say this to me and I've said it too. I've tried, I, I was going to do something I wanted to do. And I looked at someone that was spiritual or an accountability person. And I've said, well, I prayed about it. As if suddenly that makes it all okay. My disobedience, my rebellion... But Samuel covers this need to be recognized and right in religious language. So all these symptoms, we kind of add them up, and, and you've need to be recognized. You've wanted to build the monument to yourself. And you wouldn't build a monument, but you've like, man, I wish the boss would not look at me. I, I wish I would get asked sometimes. I wish they would give me an out of boy or out of girl at work. And then you've kind of wanted to argue your point and you've argued it in your head, and sometimes it's actually come out of your mouth in your marriage or in your job, and you've need to be recognized and you've needed to be right. And so what is this first of the seven deadly sins but the sin of pride? But the sin of pride. Now, here's why this is so tricky. Okay? Because pride, before it's an action and a behavior, it's a mentality and a preoccupation. It's a preoccupation with yourself and 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 that's what's crazy about pride like you can be insecure and don't put me in coach and i can't do it and you feel all humble you're like who me god can't use me and you feel kind of humble about it but really you're prideful because you're preoccupied with who you think you are or who the world says you are rather than who god says you are and it keeps you out of the game And it keeps you from saying yes, maybe, to God's call on your life. And we do it all in the name of protecting ourselves. So I've got to promote myself to get recognized. I've got to build a monument to myself with kind of I'll name drop at the party. And, you know, and I'll just kind of throw my resume out, dibble-dabble at these some conversations with the boss because I've got to look out for number one. So I'll promote myself to advance my cause, to look out for number one because if I'm not looking out for me, no one else is. Or, I'm preoccupied myself, so I'm insecure. I don't want to fail, so I I don't want to be an embarrassment. I don't want to do something futile, so I'll back up and I'll say, oh, God couldn't use someone like me, or you wouldn't use someone like me. And the ironic thing is this. The ironic thing is this, that we think pride is how we protect ourselves, but pride leads to self-destructive behaviors. Pride becomes this prison that we lock God and lock other people out of. So, so there's kind of a spectrum of pride, okay? And it looks like this. On one end, you've got insecurity and, and I'm afraid and, and, and I'm not impressive and I'm going to hide behind the luggage and so I don't have to get chosen, so I don't have to volunteer, so I don't have to be called upon. And then on the other extreme, you have this promotion. So I'll build a monument for myself and, and, I'll, and, I, and I'll say, hey, I did everything right when I really did it, did, disobeyed God or really did it wrong. And so Saul is all on the map here. And, and no, for, So for you, you know, you might be a self-promoter and, and self-exalter and, a, hey, look at me and look how impressive I am and I, I look how the world says I ought to look and I look how the job says I need to look to get, the, to get the promotion or whatever. Or you might be the insecure person like, pastor, I couldn't serve at the church. Like, God would never use someone like me. God can't save someone like me. And, and so that's kind of the roadmap of this, fir, this seven deadly sin of pride. And so, in the midst of Saul's excuses, listen to what Samuel says. He says, stop. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, he replied. So Samuel continues, although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. God chose you. God positioned you. God puts you here for such a time as this, but you didn't accept it. And then now, you're doing it, being the king, without God. You're disobeying him. So, he says, why didn't you obey the Lord? Why, didn't, why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil on the Lord's side?" And he gets argumentative and defensive. Another, another symptom of pride. But I did obey the Lord. No, you didn't. And so Saul answered, for rebellion is like the sin of divination or seeking witchcraft. And defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have, remember we said rejected or not taken what the word of the Lord said. You have rejected the word of the Lord. And so he has rejected you as king. So here's what pride does. Okay? And, and, and this is why it's so deceptive and it's so sinister is pride causes us to miss or ignore or not believe God's grace to us. God has chosen you, Saul. No, he hadn't. I can't accept that. I'll accept what I think of me and the world says about me before I'll trust what God says about me. I'll hide behind the supplies rather than go out and accept my calling for God. Or, I don't need God's favor I'm the man, I'm the woman, I've got it, I've got what it takes. We all need grace. The grace of, of self, when we want to promote ourselves, grace for minds is, look, if it's not for God's grace, you would be but dust in the ground. When we're insecure and afraid, and, and we don't think we have what it takes, grace says, no, God loves you, God's got a plan for you, God's got a purpose for you. And, and, and so pride is a mentality. That then shows up at certain occasions in our life. So it's always there. Because it's in your mind. You're preoccupied with yourself. How do I get ahead? Gosh, I don't have what it takes. How do I get what ahead? I, I don't have what it takes. And so on, on a couple of occasions, pride will manifest and show up in a behavior. It will show up in these following occasions. When things get difficult, we become preoccupied with ourselves. We take matters into our own hands. We doubt God. Delays in the timetable. What's wrong? What's taking it so long? I'll act. I'll do it. I'll do it my way. Or when there's success. Our success? Hey, look at me. I am the man. Other people's success. And you start thinking, if you can't, listen, if you can't celebrate someone else's success, especially in your deal, like your business, your job, your team, that's a sign of pride because you're like, I want what they have. And, and the only cure for pride and the only solution for this is to understand this. And it is so, it's so liberating when you get there. I, and I'm not there every day. I'm, not, I'm there at the beginning of some days and at the end of some days I'm not. So it's a process. But here's what I would love for us to hear and embrace today. You are, we are who grace says we are. You are who grace says you are. Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is the fact that Jesus came, lived the perfect life that we could not live, died for us, died instead of us, and rose again, resurrection, to give us adoption, life, and power in his name. So what does grace say? To the person that thinks they're good, the person that self-promotes. The person that has the worldly uh, pedigree and is impressive in the world's eyes. Grace says, you are way more sinful than you dare to admit or want to acknowledge. You can't, to the religious person. Your religious person says, hey God, look at me. Look what I've done. I'm a pretty good person. Grace says, your righteousness is but filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. And so grace has a humbling effect. Now, to the insecure person, the person who's so preoccupied with their failures, so preoccupied with their shortcomings, their weaknesses, with with how the world has told them, you don't measure up, you don't look like People magazine. Grace says, you are far more loved than you can possibly fathom. Jesus paid an infinite and eternal price to show you his love for you, to adopt you in his forever family. You may not have value in this world, but you have value in the world to come. Amen. That's what grace says to the insecure person. Now, now, now you can sum, maybe you can see this. Pride is how you go to hell. Yeah. And I don't mean that like figuratively like you might say to that driver you're mad at that you confessed earlier in the sermon. I say that literally and theologically. Pride is how you go to hell. Because, listen, the religious person, the the self promoter, the person who thinks they've got it all together, I don't need a Savior. I don't need Jesus. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I've done the religious junk and I've checked this box, checked that box. I've never killed anybody. I'm okay without God. I'm okay without a blood bought sacrifice by the Savior of the world. I don't need Jesus. For the insecure person who says, look at what I've done. God can't possibly forgive me. God can't possibly love me. God can't possibly use me. So you don't receive Jesus either because God couldn't love you. And that's why pride is the way you get to hell. Do you know what song they sing in hell? Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Now, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge, okay? It's one thing for us to oppose something in principle and quite another to oppose something in practice. So in principle, we can say, okay, I've got pride. You know, the four or five symptoms, Matt listed. Yep, check, 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 check. It's like being diagnosed with the flu. Okay, I got the flu. Okay, pride's in me. I, and I realize it, it kind of crowds God out. I realize it kind of keeps me out of the game, or however it manifests and shows up itself in, in, in destructive patterns in your life. Okay, I got it. It's one thing to agree in principle and walk out of here and be the same person. It's another to start opposing it in practice. So we've got to talk about how do we fight and kill the vice? How do we fight and kill the vice? One of the ways you know you're saved, one of the ways you know you're a Christian is, do you fight sin? Do you fight the habits and the vices? Do you fight them? Or do you say, oh, they're okay, nothing really wrong with it? Or do you fight it in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit? So here's how we fight it. A couple of thoughts for us, okay? Number one, rejoice that Christ died to save and change sinners. He did not die for the righteous. He did not die for the people who have their act together, but no one does. He, he died for sinners. That's you, that's me. But he didn't die just to save us. He died to change us. That's Easter. That's resurrection power flowing to the person who puts their faith and trust in King Jesus. So let's look at some scripture. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.15 This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. You know who said that? The guy who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Paul, I am the worst sinner. You know what that is? A man who's been humbled. What humbled Paul? The gospel. Paul, you think you're this righteous Pharisee religious person? (laughs) Jesus needed to die for you too. And so Paul sees himself as the worst of sinners. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. You see, the new has come. God does not just save us, to get out of hell free. He saves us and changes us. New creation, which means the pride that kind of ruled our life, the preoccupation with ourselves, we switch from a self-centered to a Christ-centered life. That's why Paul says this, one of my favorite verses of the whole New Testament, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, did Paul Paul get up on the cross and and physically get crucified? He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It is no longer my pride that's alive and powerful, but Christ is alive and powerful. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gospel And gave himself for me, instead of me. Gospel. So, with the seven deadly sins, this will be true for the next several weeks. It is not enough to say, stop it. We must also replace it. So I can't stand up here and say, hey, stop being lustful, guys. Yeah, right, that'll work. But we'll give you a cure for that next week. Remember Rockbridge Kids, right? It's not enough for me to say, hey, just quit being prideful. We have to replace it. We have to replace it. And and this is an action that the Scriptures call putting off, putting on. Putting off, putting on. Ephesians 4, 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, the way of life that died on the cross, the way of life that was ruled by pride, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, To be made new in the attitude of your minds. Remember, pride starts in the mind. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The second thing in our fighting this vice, putting off this sin, is we need to learn to welcome anything that humbles us. So instead of getting mad at the guy who cut you off in traffic this morning, thank you, God, because it humbles you. Anything that humbles us, we need to learn to receive as a blessing because the only blessable position, listen, only blessable position is the humble position. When you become a Christ follower, if you've not become a Christ follower, you have to be in a position of complete humility. I can't save myself. He did. This is what my sin did to him. I accept him as my King, Lord, and Savior. That's humility. Do you want to be full of the Holy Spirit? You can't be full of yourself. So we must welcome anything that humbles us. Now, I want to make a case because I think this is important and it's being lost in the church today. I want to make a case for church membership as a way, as a path for humility. Sometimes we'll have, why do I need to be a member of a church? Why do I need to be a member of a church? Well, one, it's biblical. But two, in the two passages where we have strong context telling us you need to be a member of a church, and and the New Testament defines that, you need to be underneath the authority of elders, plural. So all of our campuses, all five have elders, plural, at each campus to fulfill this New Testament prescription. Okay, but listen to how the New Testament authors talk about church membership. Okay, Hebrews 13, 7, obey your spiritual leaders and submit to them. Humble yourself under them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And so they can do this with joy and not grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. 1 Peter 5 says this, You who are younger spiritually, be subject to elders. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your cares upon him because he cares about you. There's something about being in community where you're submitted that helps you fight pride. Helps you recognize pride. Helps you identify pride. And and there's something humbling about doing what spiritual leaders say. See, but what what have we said about church membership? Oh, I don't need that. What was the first word you said? I. 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 Well, I, 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 I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah, but your relationship with Jesus is not private, and it's not meant to be done alone. It's meant to be in submission to the church, which is ultimately in submission to Christ. So just a case for church membership in this fight against pride. Third, and probably most important, we have to find and focus on a better boast I want to tell you something. Your heart was made to boast. Your heart was made to boast, but not in yourself. Jeremiah 9, 23. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. So your heart, whether you're a Christ follower or not, whether you have strayed from God or coming back to God or or seeking God, wherever you are on the spiritual spectrum, wherever you're on the pride spectrum, your heart was not made to look at a mirror and get insecure and afraid or to get get into self-exaltation and promotion mode. Your heart was made to look at Christ, to boast in Him, to rejoice in Him, to worship Him, to be enthralled with Him. One of my favorite pastors, a Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShayan, says this, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every one look at yourself, take ten to Christ. And let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly, the world or Satan or the flesh. So powerful. So here's what I want us to say. You are who grace says you are. And here's what that means. The outcomes that God wants for us are better than we can produce on our own. What if Saul had said yes to God because grace had, has said, I've graced you for this role. What if Saul had believed grace and not believed his own mental highlight reel? So what about you today? How today do you need to say yes to grace? How do you need to say yes to grace? Grace is the fuel for your soul. Jesus is the boast of your heart. Join with me as we pray together. King Jesus, I thank you, I thank you for showing us, God, in love, who our heart was made to stand in awe of, and that's your Son. And when we look at you, Jesus, we're humbled because of our sin and our need for a Savior, but God, we're not belittled, we're not cast aside, we're picked up, we're loved as grace-bought children of the Most High God. God, may we rejoice in you, may we boast in you. God, As we close our service, may we quit looking at ourselves. And may we look to King Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. In whose name we pray, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.